Chapter fifty four of Women of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, July two thousand twelve. Women of History by Anonymous. Chapter fifty four. Queen Anne. Born sixteen sixty four. Died seventeen fourteen. Miss Strickland. Queen Anne had a person and appearance, not at all ungraceful, till she grew exceedingly gross and corpulent. There was something of majesty in her look, but mixed with a sullen and constant frown that plainly betrayed a gloominess of soul and cloudiness of disposition within. She seemed to inherit a good deal of her father's moroseness, which naturally produced in her the same sort of stubborn positiveness in many cases, both ordinary and extraordinary and the same sort of bigotry in religion. This passage, being written for insertion in a party work, appeals to vulgar opinion. The slight contraction in the Queen's eyes, the writer perfectly well knew, had been occasioned by violent inflammation in her childhood, and was not connected with temper. The Duchess of Marlborough likewise well knew, and had experienced, that excessive indulgence, and not moroseness, in his family circle, was the fault of the unhappy James the Second her own early benefactor. However, this libel was to have been published under Bishop Burnet's mask. Thus does the creature of the bounty of those she maligns pursue her theme. Queen Anne's memory was exceeding great, almost to a wonder, and had these two peculiarities very remarkable, that she could, when she pleased, forget what others would have thought themselves bound by truth and honour to remember while she remembered all such things as others would have thought it a happiness to forget. Indeed she chose to exercise it in very little besides ceremonies and customs of courts, and such like insignificant trifles, so that her conversation, which otherwise might have been enlivened by so great a memory, was only made more empty and trifling by its chiefly turning upon fashions and rules of precedence, or some such poor topics upon which account it was a sort of misfortune to her that she loved to have a great crowd come to her, having little to say to them, but that the weather was either hot or cold, and little to inquire of them, but how long they had been in town, or the like weighty matters. She never discovered any readiness of parts, either in asking questions or in giving answers. In matters of ordinary moment her discourse had nothing of brightness or wit, in weightier matters she never spoke but in a hurry, and had a certain knack of sticking to what had been dictated to her, to a degree often very disagreeable, and without the least sign of understanding or judgment. As the Duchess was considered the Queen's dictator for thirty years, she had ample opportunity of speaking on this trait of her character, but it only became apparent to her when the dictatorship was transferred for a few years to another person. The Queen's letters, she continues, were very indifferent, both in sense and spelling, unless they were generally enlivened with a few passionate expressions, sometimes pretty enough, but repeated over and over again, without the mixture either of diversion or instruction. Now turn the medal and read the reverse. Queen Anne had a person and appearance very graceful, something of majesty in her look. She was religious without affectation, and certainly meant to do everything that was just. She had no ambition, which appeared by her being so easy in letting King William come before her to the crown, after the king, her father, had followed such counsels as made the nation see they could not be safe in their liberty and lives without coming to the extremities they did, 
and she thought it more for her honour to be easy in it, than to make a dispute who should have the crown first that was taken from her father. And it was a great trouble to her to be forced to act such a part against him, even for security, which was truly the case, and she thought those that showed the least ambition had the best character. Her journey to Nottingham was purely accidental, never concerted, but occasioned by the great fright she was in when King James returned from Salisbury, upon which she said she would rather jump out of the window than stay and see her father. Those who have read the previous character, drawn of Queen Anne by the same person, must think the contradictions between the two truly monstrous, and the emanation of a bewildered brain. Some candid persons, disposed to sentimentalize on the fierce Duchess, have supposed that, after a lapse of time, her mind had softened towards her benefactress, and that she wrote the last character as a reparation for the first. But such inferences vanish before the fact that the Duchess herself favors the world with her motives, in raising a statue at Blenheim to her former royal mistress, and adorning it with the laudatory inscription, the whole being avowedly not to do justice to Queen Anne, but to vex and spite Queen Caroline, the consort of George the Second. Here are her words. This character of Queen Anne is so much the reverse of Queen Caroline that I think it will not be liked at court. In the middle of the last century, the Duchess of Marlborough hated Queen Caroline more than she did Queen Anne. Such is the real explanation of these discrepancies. Other contemporary authors have mentioned traits of Queen Anne, according to their knowledge. When all are collected and examined, certain contradictions occur, for they do not enough distinguish between the actions of Anne in her youth, as an uneducated and self-indulgent woman, and the undeniable improvement in her character. Even the awful responsibility of a reigning sovereign, whose practical duties were at that era by no means clearly defined, awoke her conscience to trembling anxiety for the welfare of her people. Much permanent good she assuredly did, and no evil as Queen Regent, notwithstanding the ill-natured sarcasms of a Whig politician, who, when mentioning her demise at an opportune juncture for the Hanoverian succession, declared that Queen Anne died like a Roman, for the good of her country, but no sovereign was ever more deeply regretted by the people. The office of regality was, there is no doubt, a painful occupation to her, for her constant complaint was, observes Tyndall, that she was only a crowned slave, the originality of which expression savours not of the dullness generally attributed to this queen. Her person is represented differently by those who saw her daily. Her complexion was ruddy and sanguine. The luxuriance of her chestnut hair has already been mentioned. Her face was round and comely, her features strong and regular and the only blemish in it was that deflection which had fallen on her eyes in her childhood, had contracted the lids and given a cloudiness to her countenance. Thus the frown that the Duchess of Marlborough dwells on malevolently did not arise from ill-nature, but from defect of vision. The Duchess has likewise given a malignant turn to a trifling incident arising from Anne's near-sightedness, quoted in her early life, Queen Anne was of a middle stature, observes another contemporary not so personable and majestic as her sister, Queen Mary. Her face was rather comely than handsome. It seemed to have a tincture of sourness in it, and for some years before she died was rubicund and bloated. Her bones were small, her hands extremely beautiful, her voice most melodious, and her ear for music exquisite. She was brought up in high church principles, 
but changed her parties according to her interest. She was a scrupulous observer of the outward and visible forms of godliness and humility in public service. As, for instance, she reproved once the minister of Windsor Castle for offering her the sacrament before the clergy present had communicated, thus forgetting her position and dignity as head of the church. End of chapter 54